Welcome to City Talk, a podcast from City View Church in Northern Virginia. City View is a church for all ages and all nations. We offer to everyone the hope, healing, and help that is found in Jesus Christ. We at City View want to be a church that builds one another up, blesses our community, and sends people and resources for the gospel. But sometimes this seems too idealistic and doesn't always match up with our lived reality. Why is that? The last book of the Old Testament has some things to say about this. So we plan to spend the next three weeks looking at the message of Malachi to identify and expose some common worship disorders that keep us from experiencing God's best. Amen. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. And may we take that name as seriously as God intends for us to do so. You know, as a church, as we're facing forward and we want to do what God wants us to do, we want to go where God wants us to go, we know that he has called us to make disciples, and that is to help people take the next step towards knowing, loving, and following Jesus Christ. But for us to do that, what is going to fuel that passion in us is worship. You see, worship matters. Worship is something we should be doing 24-7. Who or what you worship will drive your life, everything you do. It will influence every aspect of your life. So if worship influences everything we do, we ought to know what worship is. Worship is far more than being a church on Sunday morning. Worship is far more than a song. In a sense, those are just the tip of the iceberg. Those are expressions of what's really in our heart. You see, worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship, in which you declare the worth of someone or something. And the way we show worship, the way we declare worth, is by making that thing or that person our priority in all that we do. So it only makes sense for us as Christ followers to say, when we worship him, We make him our priority 24-7, whether we're in church or outside of church, no matter what we're doing. And if he is on our hearts, if he is on our mind, that will drive us. You see, as human beings, we were all made to worship. It's hardwired into our DNA. We are worshiping creatures. In a famous graduation speech about 20 years ago, David Foster Wallace, who is not a professing Christian, said this. Because there's something else that's weird about life, but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. But the only choice we have is who we worship. And that's a choice we need to make each day. Worship matters. It will drive how we live. But if we are worshiping Christ in the fullness of his glory 24-7, then the outflow of that is we will be a body of believers, Christ followers, who build up one another, who bless the community around us, and send people out to do the work of Christ. Building, blessing, and sending. Those are the outflow of worship. So it only makes sense that we get worship 
right. Building, blessing, and sending are the overflow of hearts that do what we talked about in Acts 9 last week, that walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. When we have awareness of who God is, how much glory he deserves, when we say, Lord, I need your strength, I need your help for everything in life, that's a life of worship. And we can do it anywhere. But you know, worshiping the God of the universe, the one true God, does not come easily to us. It sounds very straightforward when you say, we're going to live all our lives as an act of worship towards God. But there are all kinds of distractions, all kinds of things that get in the way of that. We're prone to what I'm going to call worship disorders. And as long as these worship disorders have root in our souls, then we're not going to worship God as we ought to, which means that we're not going to live our lives as we ought to, that we won't be the church family that we could be. We need to worship right. So over the next three weeks, I want to look at several different worship disorders, and they're all found in the book of Malachi. So let me give you a little background. You can turn there if you want. It's the last book in the Old Testament. You can open your uh, Bible. You can pull it up on version. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi was written about 400 years before the birth of Christ. Now, it's important you know some of the background to it because that'll give us context, and I think we can connect with some of that. But what had happened is God's people had gone into exile in Babylon. That's when some of the big names like Daniel came up. You might have read about Daniel and the lion's sins. That was all then. They they were 70 years in captivity. And then God miraculously said, I've got plans for you guys. I'm taking you out, and I'm sending you back home. When Malachi was written, the people had been back home for about 100 years. They were in their land. They even had a new temple. But something just wasn't quite right. They were very comfortable. And they weren't bad people in the sense of, you know, sometimes you think of a prophet talking to people in the Bible, and it's like, you're really rotten. You've got to get your act together. I'm sure that many of those people that Malachi was speaking to could be ordinary, regular churchgoers today. They were respectable people. They were comfortable. It's kind of like, God, would you just leave us alone and let us have our own lives? Oh, but we do want your blessing. We do want to be able to call on you when we need you, but otherwise leave us alone. That's the drift you get as you read the book of Malachi, and I encourage you to do that. It's only four chapters long. And God brings several charges against his people. And they're all things that no respectable churchgoer would say, yeah, this is me, but they're really whispers of defeat. They're things that all of us will say, yep, I've been there, I've done that. Or maybe you might say, yep, I'm in the middle of this. But when God brings these criticisms, when God brings these charges, he's not doing it to smack people down. He's doing it to diagnose a disorder and say, I have the antidote for you. So we're going to talk about the disorder as well as the antidote. The first worship disorder we'll talk about is what I'm going to call leftover syndrome. Leftover syndrome. 
You can pick up in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. Leftover syndrome is, as the name implies, is giving God the leftovers, keeping the best for myself. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? That's a hard thing what God is doing right here. He's talking to the priests at the time, the religious leaders, and he's saying, you despise my name. And they're like, I'm one of your choice people, God. But God's saying, you despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept what you offer? Will he show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, Will he show you favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. That's pretty brutal what God is doing there. Now, I know Bible talk isn't the way, isn't the way we actually speak today, and it's a little bit more formal sounding, but God is saying, I wish someone would close the doors of the temple and you would stop offering those sacrifices because your hearts are so far from me. It's as visceral as God saying to people in church, you know, I wish you'd just shut the doors and just go, stay home and watch TV like you want to. It's pretty hard what God is saying. So where do we go from here? What was the problem the people were offering subpar sacrifices to God, keeping the best for themselves and giving God the leftovers. You see, these people saw their worship, bringing the sacrifices to the temple as a win-win. Some bright spark figured out, hey, this is great. I can get rid of the goats, the sheep, whatever that I don't want, you know, the crummy ones, and I'll just give them to, as sacrifices, so I'm checking the box that I'm doing my religious duty. But God says that's not what it's all about. Further back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, God explicitly says of the sacrifices, but if it has any blemish, if it's lame or blind, or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord. God is saying, when you bring your worship to me, I don't want second best. I don't want your leftovers. I don't want the stuff that you're like, oh, I don't need it anyway. I'll give it to God. See, God wants our heart, and he deserves our best. See, this leftover syndrome, it really exposed the people's hearts. When the people were bringing second-rate, third-rate, fourth-rate, and worse, sacrifices to God, it showed what they were really thinking. 
So three things about leftover syndrome. It reveals what you think about God. It reveals that you don't think God is as great and as big and as powerful and as awesome as he truly is. Back in the day, and we do the same thing, we treat God like a lucky charm. It's like, if I can say I have some allegiance to God, well, he'll help me out when I need me, but then he'll kind of leave me alone the rest of my life and get me, let me get on with what I really want to do. God says, no, that's not it. It also shows that the people disrespected God. Religious on the outside, but far from God on the inside. You know, it's the old saying of wearing the Sunday best so you look good on the outside, but inside, your heart is distant from God. And you're not interested in pleasing him. You know, every once in a while you hear someone, maybe they're being interviewed or they're a celebrity or so, and they will give a little hat tip to the man upstairs as if they think that, hey, if I say God, tell God I'm on his team, then he's going to be really excited and bless me even more. But that's completely missing the point. God is God. You know, there's another verse in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19. I'll just read it to you. God is speaking to his people. And this is before they got sent into exile. This is a couple hundred years earlier than the book of Malachi. It says, your wickedness will bring its own punishment. You turning from me will shame you. You will see what an evil and bitter thing it is to abandon the Lord your God and not to fear him. That's not having the fear of God. That's not respecting him. That's not giving him the honor that he deserves. And then God signs off on that by saying, I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. And I think there's times that we just need to stop and think about how God refers to himself, the Lord of heaven's armies. I mean, you think of the most powerful weapon that mankind has invented. That's a pea shooter compared to the Lord of heaven's armies. And we have the audacity sometimes to not take him seriously and not give him what he deserves. I think if we had a fresh glimpse of how powerful and how great our God is, it would transform us. God is not to be trifled with. But it goes even deeper beyond this. Because God is not just being mean saying, I don't care about those sacrifices that are blind or blemished, because he's going after the heart of the people who are offering sacrifices. But he is also pointing further down the road because this idea of a sacrifice being an unblemished animal, a perfect animal, is pointing further ahead towards the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus had to be a perfect sacrifice for us. He had to be sinless. And early in the ministry of Jesus, John the Baptist looks up and he says, Behold, this is the Lamb of God. And we can read that today and we go, eh, the Lamb of God. But I suspect there were people standing there who goes, whoa, this is what all these sacrifices were doing. This is who they pointed to. It would have meant a little bit more to the people who were right then and there in that day. Later on in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 9, it says that, you know, all these sacrifices... They were just a picture 
of what is yet to come. The blood of goats and bulls and and sheep will not wash away your sins, but the blood of Christ will, because we find forgiveness in him. So leftover syndrome exposes that we have a low opinion of God. We can talk up all we want, but when what actually shows up on the altar is the leftovers, that's leftover syndrome. It's a worship disorder. So the antidote to leftover syndrome is to wholeheartedly, joyfully give God our best. Further on in the Bible, in the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, God, uh, that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices towards God. But you see, here's the thing. We have to understand how great God is. And so going back, I mean, Malachi again, in verse 11 of Malachi, it says this. I'm going to pick up. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness this is. And he snored at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Should I really have to take your leftovers, the garbage that you don't want? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. It's when we see God for who he truly is and all that he's done and we take it to heart that we can do real worship and say, Lord, here's all of me. You can have all of me. As I said, the leftover, the uh, antidote to leftover syndrome is found in Romans 12.1. Offer yourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. But to understand this verse, so that it's not just a random command in Scripture, not just a random box that you can check, you've got to understand all that went forward in Romans in the first 11 chapters. Romans is a great book. You ought to read it. It's 16 chapters long. It's a great book, and I recommend the other 65 books in the Bible, too. You ought to read them as well. But Romans chapter 16 kind of gives us a summary. I mean, Romans in 16 chapters gives a summary of what God has done to save us. Chapter 1 starts out like this. The gospel is great, and you're bad. You're really bad off. And after reading chapter 1, most people will say, hey, I'm not that bad. And in chapters 2 and 3, God says, oh, yes, you are. The religious person gets busted, and the non-religious person gets busted. Every human being is left without hope. But then God pierces the darkness and says, but now the righteousness that God requires, the goodness that God requires is available through faith. This is awesome. And in chapters, three, four, in chapters 4 and 5, God tells us more about this concept of justification, 
meaning Christ is the perfect sacrifice who died in our place so that our sins can be forgiven. His righteousness, his goodness, his perfection is credited to us so that when we stand before God, when all is said and done, he doesn't see all of our sin, our garbage, our shame. He sees Christ's perfection. That's awesome. Chapter 6 and 7, it's how to live this out. Sanctification, growing in holiness in light of what God has done for us. Chapters 8 is glorification. Our future is bright. And then God steps back in chapters 9 through 11 and kind of shows the grand scheme of all he has done to give us a Savior. And at the end, towards the end of chapter 11, in light of all that God has done, the Apostle Paul just kind of exclaims, this is incredible. It only makes sense to serve him. But for chapter 12, verse 1, this whole idea of offering ourselves a living sacrifice, it only makes sense when we realize all that God has done for us. Dorothy Sayers was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis around World War II in Britain. And Britain was further ahead of us in having, a, at the time, a nice churchy schedule uh, appearance where people looked really good on the outside, but inside, they couldn't have cared less about God. And she did a series of radio speeches, and one of them is called The Dogma is the Drama. And I wish I could mimic her accent, but I would sound foolish if I did, so I'm not going to, don't worry. But I want you to imagine this lady reading this over the radio to a nation. She's essentially repeating the message that God was giving Malachi. Because as Christians, we have the greatest story imaginable, what God has done to save us. And yet so many of us are kind of like, meh, I need something more exciting. But there is nothing more exciting than what God has done for us and what God calls us to. And I can't think of a greater joy that we can have than being together in lockstep, building up one another, blessing our community, and sending out from our midst to advance the cause of Christ in our backyard and other churches and then all around the world. And I think when we have a fresh vision of what God has done for us, that's going to change the way we live. She says this, speaking to people who are sitting in churches who knew the creeds and were bored by them. So the outline of the official story, the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten, and he submitted to the conditions he had laid down and became a man like the men he had made, and the men he had made broke him and killed him. This is the dogma that we find so dull, this terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. If this is dull, then what in heaven's name is exciting? The people who hang Christ on the cross never, to do them justice, accused him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought he was so dynamic that they would stop at nothing to quiet him. So it's been left to us, later generations, 
to muffle the shattering personality of Christ. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah and certified him meek and mild and recommended him as a fitting household cat for pale curates and pious old ladies. And she was an older woman when she said this. It's powerful. How can we be bored with what God has done for us? You know, sometimes when you hear something a lot, you kind of take it for granted. My prayer for all of us is that we would have a fresh appreciation and a fresh sense of what God has done for us. In light of this, this is how Romans 11 ends. This is the ramp up to the call to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. The Apostle Paul in verse 33 of chapter 11, after saying all these great things in the previous 11 chapters, says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He is amazing. He's beyond description. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? That's dipping back into the Old Testament, book of Isaiah. Or who has given a gift to him that he should be repaid? That's dipping back into Job. We'll never be able to give God and to pay him back for all that he's done for us. And God doesn't expect us to. Then he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Here he's saying God is the creator. He is the sustainer. And he's the heir. He is the A to Z of life. And he's worthy of building our life around. And it's like when you realize all that he's done for you and how great he is, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, now that you understand the big picture of what they're all about from the previous 11 chapters I wrote, to present your bodies. And I think it's significant that God says present your bodies. He doesn't give us a highfalutin philosophical, just give yourselves to God. He says present your bodies. He's saying your everyday life, all that you do, it's very practical. Give yourself to God. Right here, right now to give yourself as a living sacrifice, to say, Lord, I'm here, I'm yours. But we all know the problem with a living sacrifice is it wants to crawl off the altar over and over again. And every day we have to say, Lord, I'm here, do what you want with me. It says we're to be holy and acceptable to God without blemish. It means, Lord, I'm trying to live a holy life and I need your help to do that but I want to grow in Christ-likeness and give myself to you. It's your spiritual worship. It's your reasonable worship. It only makes sense in light of who God is. You see, the quality of your worship will be directly proportional to your view of God. Quality of your worship will be directly proportional to the view of your God. If we see God for who he is in his greatness, if we're awestruck by what he's done for us, and then we are amazed that God didn't say, see what I've done for you? You need to do the same for me. 
He never does that. He says, just come to me as you are and let me build you up, let me grow you. And I will do things through you that are greater than you could ask or imagine. God loves using unlikely people, and that's us. But he does want us to say, Lord, you can have all of me. God didn't want us to have secret compartments in our lives where we say, God, I'll give you this that people see on Sunday morning, but the rest is mine. God says, give me yourself. And maybe you feel like I'm not worthy. If people knew what I was really like, don't worry about that. The very essence of being a Christian is you recognize that you're not good enough to be a Christian. The very essence of being a Christian is we recognize, oh God, I have sinned, I've blown it, I'm going to continue to sin. I need your forgiveness. I need a Savior. I need your help. And God knows that. And the amazing thing is, God looks at us in the mess we've made of things and says, would you like me to do something great? Would you like me to use you for something incredible? All we have to do is say, Lord, here I am. And it is, Lord, here's all of me. Would you take me as I am, clean out the garbage, whether it be sin in my life, whether it be weird character traits, whatever it might be, Lord, would you clean all that out and make me think, act, and speak like Jesus? And God can do great things through you. God's not looking for people who can impress with, these are the degrees I have, these are the skills I have. God is looking for people who will just say, just take me as I am, and then transform me into Christ. The incredible thing about the gospel is that we really are worse off than we feared. There is nothing we can do to earn God's favor by ourselves. But the balance is, when you understand the gospel, you see that even though we're bad off, God loves us more than we can dream. And he says, I'll take you, but I need you to hop up on the altar and make yourself available. Will you do that? The quality of your worship is directly proportional to your view of God and all that he's done. When we are a people who worship God in the splendor of who he is and what he's done, we're going to be bringing good worship to him, good sacrifices. You know, when we look at Scripture... I think it's important that we apply what we learn. God doesn't want us to just read it and keep it up here and move on. But there's another trap we can get is, I I need to get these like three action steps I need to take after reading a passage. And I don't think we need to do that every day. I think there are times to just read scripture and be awestruck at how great God is. My happy place is the beach. And it's not necessarily all the partying and the crazy stuff that can go on like that. But to be able to sit and just hear the waves crashing, it can be at night, it can be at day. I don't even have to see it, but just to hear it. And it's just a reminder. It puts things in perspective. God is far bigger than me. 
there's something about hearing those waves crash up on the shore that it's much easier for me to say, Lord, here's what I'm worried about. Here are my problems. You have them. You're bigger and better than me. I'll never forget the first time I saw the Grand Canyon. I've seen pictures of, I'd seen pictures of it before. I'd seen it in video before, all that. But there's just something when you see it, it's overpowering. You can see something in nature and go, that's pretty. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. When you see the Grand Canyon, it's like, this is amazing. And I think we need to have that perspective of God too. And it's okay as we have him in our mind to just say, he is amazing. Because when he overwhelms our hearts and our minds with his greatness, that's going to give us perspective in life. That's going to give us a confidence and a joy that we never knew we had. It's also going to have a cleaning effect on our hearts. Because if we're thinking on his greatness and how fantastic he is, you know, sin is not that appealing. Whereas when our minds are empty and we don't have anything about the Lord going through our mind or we're not captivated by how fantastic it is, then sin looks pretty good. I've used this analogy before. You know, I like fast food hamburgers. I think they're pretty good. But if you, and you're welcome to try this with me, but if you were to invite me out to Ruth's Chris and say, I want to treat you to a steak dinner, I guarantee you I could drive past 10 fast food places and have zero desire for those hamburgers because I know what I'm looking forward to. And when we're captivated with the greatness of God, we'll bring him our best. It's worth regularly taking time to just get caught up in God's greatness. Just like listening to the waves crashing on the shore at the beach. And to kind of exhale and just say, I am God's child as a Christian. He can do anything. I'm going to trust him. But when we get distracted by all the stuff around the world, when we're focusing on our problems and only glancing at God, we'll be in trouble. But when we gaze at God and then just glance at our problems and say, you're pretty big, but you're nowhere near as big as my God, we'll be fine. Worship disorder and leftover syndrome focus on the wrong thing. We need to have our eyes on Christ and all that he has done. I'd like for all of us, maybe just take inventory of your life now. Are you like the people in Malachi's day who are saying, God, you get on my leftovers. Yeah, God, I'll give you an hour on Sunday morning, but I've got a lot of other stuff I want to do during the week. Or are you saying, Lord, everything I have is yours? You see, God doesn't want us to limit worship to church. He doesn't want us to limit worship to a song. He doesn't want us to, worship, to limit worship to just religious stuff. It's something we do all the time. God knows about what you do during the day. 
and he cares about it, and he wants to help you. He knows more about computers than you do. He knows more about accounting than you do. He knows more about medicine than you do. You know, he knows more about what you do than you do. And it would only make sense that you would say, Lord, I'm going to go to work today, whether you are manufacturing widgets or whether you are auditing people's uh, books, whatever it might be, say, Lord, I want your help, and I want to do it for your glory. I want to give you my best. And when I'm at work or when I'm in school, that means I'm going to do my best in this job because I, rep- I represent Jesus Christ. That's worship. It's so much more than just confined to a building. So maybe you've been holding back. When you take stock, maybe you're thinking, you know, I really have just been giving God the leftovers. The good news is God says you can change at any time. Don't get caught up and don't believe the lie that if you have been giving God the leftovers, that he's mad at you and didn't want to see you again. God wants you to come to him and say, I'm sorry, here's the rest of me. Would you take me and would you use me? Sometimes even though we can be professing Christians, we live as practical atheists. We'll pray about religious things, but we think we're on our own on the job, in our families, or outside a church. For all of us, what's our next step to bring the right sacrifice to God? What's your next step to worship him through your school, through your job, through your time hanging out with your friends? Because God himself is too big to be contained in a building like this. He wants all of our lives, and he can show himself great. And I can't think of a greater joy than for us as a church family to be in lockstep on that mission. Because when we're in lockstep, worshiping God in the fullness that he deserves, in whatever arenas of life we're in during the week, we're going to build one another up, We're going to bless our community, and we're going to send people out for the cause of Christ. And that would be awesome. Maybe you're here today, you've heard a lot about this worship and this sacrifice thing. I want to make something very clear. You can't offer anything to God until you first accept what he has already offered to you. Sacrificing for the sake of sacrificing won't make you right with God. God has done everything that needs to be done so that you can be right with him. You don't have to do all kinds of good things to impress God because God looks at all of us and he says, you all made a mess of things. You all have this sin inside you. And that sin separates you from me. And the bad news is that there's nothing we can do to overcome that separation. Giving money to the poor, going to church, none of that will make us right with God. But God says, I've done everything that needs to be done so that you can be right with me. And he did it on the cross when Jesus hung there in our place and took the penalty that we deserve for our sin. He died, and then on the third day, he rose again to prove that he is greater than death and to prove that he is who he truly said he was, Lord, God, and Savior. And he offers you life 
And he says, you need to repent. You need to turn to me and say, I believe Jesus died in my place and he rose again. I'm clinging to him as my savior. And when we receive his offering for us, that's when God says, okay, so you recognize you've made a mess of things, but now I just want you to turn to me and give yourself back to me. And when we give ourselves to God, he can take all of us and do things better than we ever dreamt. We all have things about us that we may not like, but God can blow through all of them and he can do things greater than we can ask or imagine. So together as a church family, let's not get pulled into leftover syndrome. Let's say, Lord, here is all of me. You can have me. Do what you want with my life. Because God is a great God, and he deserves everything we have. He deserves our best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the quietness of this moment, I pray that you would do a deep work in all of our hearts. Lord, would you graciously pinpoint the areas in our lives that we're withholding from you, that we're just giving you the leftovers. And Lord, in your kindness, would you draw us close to you so that you could have all of us. Because you are a great God and your name will be praised over all the earth. And Lord, we want to be a part of you doing that. So Lord, would you capture us afresh? Maybe you've been a Christian here for a long time and it's gotten kind of stale and kind of old. Lord, I pray for anyone like that, that you would give a fresh, fresh reawakening. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not yet received Jesus' offering on our behalf, that today would be the day they call on him for salvation. Only, Lord, knit our hearts together that we would worship you in fullness, that you would use us to build up one another to bless this community and to send people out for the gospel. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.